The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. When you drive the brand ranked number one in dependability by J.D. Power, you can stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see yourself behind the wheel of the brand ranked number one in dependability by J.D. Power. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Kia received the fewest reported problems among all brands in the J.D. Power 2022 U.S. Vehicle Dependability Study based on 2019 models. See jdpower.com slash awards for 2022 details. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply at LifeMD.com. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications through LifeMD? LifeMD is now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. You just take your shot. It doesn't feel like you're on a diet. What I wasn't expecting it to do was to shut off the food noise. This was life-altering, and if I can do it, I feel like anybody can do it. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com. Listener discretion is advised. True crime can be strangely fascinating. This true crime is odd, macabre, and haunted. I'm Diane, your guide into the shadows. Welcome to Phantasmal Crime. Asheville is a smaller city in North Carolina where I had the pleasure of experiencing one of my favorite ghost tours. While on that tour, I heard about a mass shooting involving a man named Will Harris. This happened many years ago, and the violence and the residue of that event seems to have left an energy that still traverses the same area where the crimes took place to this day. Join me as we explore the crimes of Will Harris and the ghostly aftermath. Nashville is known as an artsy and bohemian city nestled in the gorgeous Blue Ridge mountain range. Thoughts of murderous rampages are incongruous with the community that dwells here. But 112 years ago, a man named Will Harris broke the calm during a night of mass murder. Now, this Will Harris was a bad guy. He had a long rap sheet, having been busted for stealing and assault many times in Charlotte, North Carolina. He had spent time in jail in Charlotte and was assigned to a chain gang of black felons from which he escaped. Charlotte had hired its first black detective named Van Griffin to hunt down Harris. He got his man and put him in the county jail. Will Harris escaped again, 
But Griffin managed to catch up to him, and this time, Harris was sent to the state prison in Raleigh. He was not yet 30 at this time, and he was not about to sit behind bars. He escaped yet again by hiding in a wagon load of bricks. Harris had a girlfriend named Molly Maxwell in Asheville, and he decided to head there so he could hide out with her. This young lady was not interested in him anymore, and had told her sister that if Harris ever came looking for her, that she was not to tell him where she was. Harris stepped off a train in Asheville on November 12, 1906. He immediately headed to a place where he thought he could find Molly. He had no luck and found a place to stay overnight. On the 13th, he wandered into the local pawn shop and started spending money like crazy. He bought a Savage 303 rifle, some tan shoes, a shirt, trousers, and a set of overalls. He also grabbed a $3 jug of bourbon. He changed into his new clothes and decided to visit Molly's sister Pearl to find out where Molly was staying. She was living 20 miles away in Hendersonville, North Carolina, so Harris thought he would hang out with Pearl. He started to get drunk on his whiskey and demanded she make him a meal. She did so to appease the man, but she started to fear for her safety, and who could blame her? The guy's drunk, he's a criminal, and he's got weapons. She told Harris that her boyfriend, Tony Johnson, would be home at 11 p.m. Johnson arrived at the home he shared with Pearl at the corner of Valley and Eagle Streets in a bad part of Asheville everyone called Hell's Half Acre, and he found Harris drunk. And to give you an idea about this location, the Asheville Citizen Times wrote on June 17, 1916, as one of the most disorderly parts of the city was a section known as Hell's Half Acre. Apparently, this was a place where they keep a lot of stables. There was a lot of tobacco farming, and so there were warehouses out here. It was just an area that people did not want to go to, and a lot of fighting would go on here. It was also described as a place fashionable with mopes, drunks, and criminals. So Johnson arrives home. He finds this Harris guy drunk, and he's clearly being belligerent to Pearl. And then he turned on Johnson, ready to fight. And Johnson probably would have fought Harris, except that Harris had that rifle. And he turned it on Johnson, who ran out of the house. Johnson did the right thing, and he headed over to the police. This was shortly before midnight. And he told police captain John Page and patrolman Charles R. Blackstock that Harris was drunk, armed, and ready to kill somebody. He told Captain Page that Harris was in the basement with his girlfriend. So both these policemen head off to the house. The two policemen arrived at the house and found the basement pitch black. They decided to head to the rear of the house and try the door. Patrolman Blackstock swung the door open and threw his flashlight into the room, upon which there was a flash and the sound of a rifle blast. Blackstock was hit and fell dead. Captain Page drew his revolver as Harris advanced outside and took a blast to the fleshy part of his right arm. The arm went numb, but Page held on to his gun. He fled as Harris continued moving forward and firing the rifle. And now that Harris is outside, it's going to get very crazy. He heads out onto Eagle Street. He was still holding the nearly empty whiskey jug as he stumbled up the road. He began shouting, I come from hell, from Charlotte, from state prison, and from the chain gang. 
and I'm surely going back to hell sooner rather than later. Meanwhile, Captain Page had made it to Pack Square where he found a patrolman named J.W. Bailey. He showed Bailey his wound and said that Harris was heading that way towards town. He told Bailey to gather a posse and let everyone know that Patrolman Blackstock had been killed. Bailey headed towards Patton Avenue and Captain Page took up a spot on South Main to wait for Harris and hopefully ambush the man. And of course, he's still bleeding from his arm, so I don't know if that would give away his spot. He certainly is a wounded man who's trying to hold his ground. Harris had continued to fire his rifle as he made his way to town, and he killed another black man named Jacko Corpening. Ben Addison, a black shopkeeper, was the next to take a bullet, and he fell dead. The rifle blasts echoed through the night, terrifying the people of Hell's Half Acre. Another black man named Tom Neal was standing on his porch when Harris came upon him, and he was shot through the groin. He staggered towards a doctor's office on Eagle Street, but he would succumb to his injury. The tally of dead now made Eagle Street and Asheville a more deadly scene than the shootout at the O.K. Corral. Harris had arrived at Main Street and he made his way up that street, shooting at George Jackson, who had luck on his side. The bullet went through his clothes, but did not break the skin. I don't know how in the world he survived that. Captain Page heard Harris coming and he started making his way in that direction. He couldn't use his wounded right arm, which was his strong arm, unfortunately. He had only a revolver with which to face down a rifle, but he was a brave man, and he stepped out after Harris. He fired every bullet he had in his revolver, and unfortunately, he missed Harris every time. Harris was unfazed and kept heading up Maine towards Pack Square where Captain Page ran for more ammo and to gather more men. At Pack Square, Harris met up with Patrolman Bailey. Bailey was waiting for him behind a telephone pole, and a gunfight ensued. A bullet from the rifle made it through the pole and hit Bailey in the heart, and he fell to the street, dead. Harris broke into a run after this and fired at anyone he saw in the street. I mean, I can't imagine how terrifying this is for people. They can hear this guy shooting a rifle all the way up into the main part of town, and he's just leaving dead bodies in his wake. In front of the British American Club on South Main Street, Harris came upon G. Spears Reynolds and two other gentlemen who had come out of the building to see what was happening. A bullet barely missed Reynolds in the head, and the men ran back into the building. Harris continued down South Main toward Biltmore, stopping long enough to fire through the plate glass window at Pelham's Pharmacy. Further on, and almost in front of the Southern Express Company's office, a man named Kelsey Bell stuck his head out the window and nearly took a bullet. Bell was the last witness to see Harris that evening. Captain Page informed his posse, and they found Patrolman Bailey dead. At around that same time, Chief of Police Bernard was notified over the telephone of the fight and he hastened to the city and took charge. He sounded the riot alarm with the fire bell. Men from across the city came, and the local hardware store was opened up to make sure everyone had a gun and ammo. Chief Bernard also made sure that the railroad knew not to allow Harris to board any train, and the dispatcher forwarded the message to every station on the Asheville Division, requesting that all trains be searched. 
The railroad men went through the trains, freight boxes, and passenger coaches on the lookout for the murder. The dispatcher also called for a special train from Spartanburg to bring bloodhounds to Asheville. The special pulled into the Biltmore Yard at 6 o'clock in the morning, and the bloodhounds were soon set to work. The posses that had formed were headed by police officers, and they took off by foot and horse to hunt down Harris. There were about 200 men in total. No one had witnessed this kind of carnage, and the townspeople were not only fearful, but they were angry. Five of their own were murdered. Those who stayed in town made their way to the undertakers to pay their respects to the fallen officers. A bloodhound named Biscuit Eater had gotten a scent off of Harris's empty whiskey bottle, and he led a group into the woods, first along the Swannanua and French Broad Rivers, then back south. The bloodhound was close because near the confluence of the rivers, Harris had been sleeping in a Biltmore barn. He'd moved on to Fletcher, eight miles from Asheville, where he hid in another barn. Someone had seen him and reported a stranger spotted near Fletcher. A small posse headed by railroad agent Frank Jordan caught Harris and chased him into a laurel thicket. A shotgun blast hit the outlaw, but he managed to empty his rifle at his pursuers. The group retreated until more men could get there. Nearly 100 men stood pointing firearms at the thicket by the time Jordan shouted, Fire! A deafening volley went up. Some 500 rounds fired into the bush. Jordan held up a hand, crept forward, and peeked into the thicket. No cheering men, he said. He's dead. There were around 100 bullet wounds in his body. Another story that I heard while on the ghost tour was that Harris's body was brought back to town with just a few bullet holes and that angry townspeople unloaded their guns into him, resulting in a bullet-riddled body. I saw the picture of Harris after this fact at the Mystery Museum Joshua P. Warren is set up in Asheville. I don't know if it's still there, but back in the day it was. And in that picture, he was definitely full of bullet holes. His body was sent off to the undertakers, and to this day, no one knows what happened to the body. The Gazette News reported, it said that the doctors have it. Harris's body may not have been seen again, but his spirit is quite a different matter. He seems to be haunting the path that he took that deadly night. Eagle Street is said to be haunted by the victims of the massacre as well. Their full-bodied apparitions are seen wandering the street. A man in a police uniform has been seen running down Eagle Street and Biltmore Avenue. The disembodied sounds of bloodhounds are heard in the alleys. Harley's tap room that is along the route reports paranormal activity, including full-bodied apparitions, disembodied voices, and an elevator that operates by itself. And that's probably because one of the victims was killed on that very spot. The dark shadow of what appeared to be a man has been seen striding down Biltmore Avenue, and it disappears into Barley's. An owner of Barley's claimed that he saw a shadow figure walk past his office window. Since the office was on the second story, it's safe to assume that this wasn't a real living person. And a bullet hole might still be in the Vance Monument in downtown Asheville that is a permanent reminder of the murderous rampage. Patrolman James Bailey is buried in Riverside Cemetery in Asheville. Patrolman Charles Blackstock is buried in Blackstock Cemetery in Jupiter, North Carolina. Ben Addison, who was one of the victims, was buried in the African-American section of Riverside Cemetery, but the location of the other two victims is unknown. There are rumors that Will Harris's body is buried in an unmarked grave in Riverside Cemetery, but as I said, we're not really sure what exactly happened to his body. In 1907, Asheville was the first town in North Carolina to outlaw the sale of alcohol. 
It was done as a direct result of the Will Harris massacre. Does Harris and do his victims haunt the streets of the former Hell's Half Acre? That is for you to decide. Thanks so much for listening to History Ghost Bumps Phantasmal Crime. If you'd like to share with us a haunted crime that you've heard about, please write us at historyghostbump at gmail.com. I've been your host, Diane. Join me on the next episode for another trip through the shadows. This has been a production of History Ghost Bump Podcast. This Valentine's Day, Dunkin's got the perfect pairings to show your love. So get down on one knee with a dozen brownie batter donuts and a cocoa mocha signature latte. Or make them swoon with a strawberry dragon fruit Dunkin' refresher with a Cupid's Choice Donut. Are you ready for love? America runs on Dunkin'. Price and participation may vary. Limited time offer. At Granger, we're for the ones who specialize in saving the day. And for the ones who've mastered the art of keeping business moving. We offer industrial-grade supplies for every industry, with same-day pickup and next-day delivery on most orders, all backed by real people ready to help. So you can get the right answers and products right when you need them. Call, click or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.